0: This week on the show, we have a FreeBSD 13.0 full desktop experience report for you, FreeBSD on ARM64 in the cloud, Plan 9 from Bell Labs in cyberspace, Inferno is also an open source, Project NetBSD hits donation milestone, Grep Returns, standard input on FreeBSD, a random programming challenge for you, OpenBSD, adds support for coordinated Mars time, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 398, Coordinated Mars Time, recorded on the 7th of April 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash BSD Now to get the online backups for the truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jute. Yes, Alan is back on the show. Thank you again to Tom Jones, who helped out in the previous two episodes. Maybe we'll get him back one day. So he seemed to have... Uh, liked the experience enough so that he offered to return but now we're also happy that alan is back and uh, let's go with the headlines unless you have something else you want to
1: (laughs) mention nope we'll start with the headlines so first up we have uh, an article from jason tubner freebsd13 the full desktop experience with the release of freebsd13.0 on the horizon i wanted to see how it shapes up on my lenovo t450 laptop Previous major releases on this laptop, using it as a workstation, felt very rough around the edges. But with 13, it feels like everything is in place now. Uh, this is I like to keep things simple when it comes to my desktop operating system. So, the description what I have below is how I went from a fresh install of FreeBSD 13 RC1 to a working uh, XFCE desktop. The FreeBSD install process is simple and well documented, so I'm not going to repeat that. However, some of the configuration items that I wanted to select, uh, like using root on ZFS, uh, encrypt swap and disabling all the extra services. So, you know, it doesn't need SSH because this is desktop. Once the machine has been rebooted, we need to uh, set up suspend and resume to work correctly and test that, ensure the power management stuff is turned on and so on. So he uh, bootstraps package and installs the DRMK mod, which gives him his graphics drivers, uh, enables PowerD to uh, throttle the cpu and, and uh enable the turbo boost when necessary and so on and reboots again once uh, the graphics drivers are in place and uh, power d is running and so on he then tries to suspend by just doing ACPI acpi conf s3 uh, to go to s3 sleep i, I generally just prefer <laughs> it's zzz much easier, yeah. the machine go to sleep <laughs> um but that sends it into the suspense state. Wait 30 seconds and then briefly press the power button. If all is working correctly, your laptop should come back to life, including the screen. This has been hit or miss on some of the previous versions, but is working very well now. Just a note if you do experience some issues here, make sure your BIOS and firmware have been updated because that's usually uh, what makes a difference there. And then there's a sysctl, uh, hardware or hw.acpi.lid switch state. Which controls what happens when you close the lid do you want it to go to sleep or do you want it to power off or whatever and so you can configure that and put that in your sysctl.conf to control uh what happens there
0: yeah good to have so one question if he
1: installed the rc1
0: does that still have the debug symbols
1: um well so you mean the debug symbols or do you mean the actual debug features in it? uh the, the stuff that makes things slower <laughs> Uh no, the RCs do not. Because otherwise, the desktop experience would probably be a bit sluggish. Um, it's not that much worse. Like you don't want to no. do benchmarks with it on, but it's it usually is not going right, to make your not, machine unusable yeah. or anything. Um, but no, the the release candidates don't have the extra stuff like the lock order checking and so on, uh, because they're meant to feel like the release. Uh, so then he installs all the Xorg stuff. So package install Xorg Xfce, uh, Xfce goodies screensaver. Uh, uh, Login screen manager, Open ntpd in his case, the Amiga fonts, and anything like that that he wants. Uh, enabling Dbus and the uh, OpenNTPD and Slim, which is the login manager. He also likes uh, OKSH as his uh, shell because uh, he's used to OpenBSD, but configures all that. And then the final part to get his vanilla XFC desktop set up and enabled was some uh, extra default settings like changing the slim.conf to use his his dark theme and so on. Uh, configuring his RC to start XFCE, reboot, and now he gets a login screen and it launches into his XFCE. Ah, uh-huh. nice pictures there as well. People even who have never seen XFCE before. Uh,
0: yeah, look, looks like a good way of getting started quickly with your desktop experience. And again, once FreeBSD is out, we will mention it here, of course, and then people will probably send in more uh, nice desktop experiences with maybe other window managers. Cool, nice article, and people can follow along with the um, you know config files posted and the uh, software he's installing. Maybe people find something they haven't uh, used before. But next up, we have a FreeBSD on ARM64 in the cloud uh, from Clara Systems. And it's yet another good article about, you guessed it, FreeBSD slash ARM64. Uh, which is the FreeBSD port uh, of the sixty-bit, sixty-four-bit uh, ARM architecture, known as AR64 or ARMv8. So all these terms mean the same thing. Uh, all supported FreeBSD releases include support for ARMv8, and there are many packages and ports, which are third-party applications, uh, that are available to to support that software. You normally deploy with FreeBSD. So the idea of ARM64 is that it extends and modernizes the ARM architecture and adds specialized instructions and accelerators as well as modern virtualization capabilities. And with ARM64 on that hardware, uh, on which FreeBSD runs, ranges from small single-board computers to mammoth multiprocessor server machines with more than 100 cores on a single socket. That is a lot of CPU power. ARM64 supports two models of describing the hardware. Most single-board computers, like the Raspberry Pis, the rock 64 or others, use the flattened device tree, or FDT, to describe the hardware, while other devices of the same, uh, like ACPI uh, interface, uh, use the same as x86 CPUs use, so the normal desktop booting procedure that is familiar to you. Um, So these are the two, FDT and ACPI. ARM64 scales up to server platforms, and the ARM, six, uh, ARM specifications intend to make it possible to have images that run everywhere through the SBSA. Never heard about that. This is the Server Based System Architecture, so SBSA. This standardizes the interface the machine uses to boot an interface with hardware and with SBSA, and another abbreviation here, SBBR, which is the Server Based Boot Requirement. Uh, ARM 64 hosts are able to boot using UEFI and discover hardware using ACPI. That makes it easier to deploy. Yeah,
1: Yeah. so basically it's a, a set of standards saying that uh, all ARM servers that that meet this requirement will boot the same way. They won't need custom U-boot or anything. It'll be uh, a normal EFI boot and they'll have ACPI for enumerating the PCI cards. So it means you can have a bunch of different ARM servers that are more interchangeable than previously ARM is generally you know purpose-built for one task um, but this is a way of having a standard for servers that are more you know ubiquitous and, and interchangeable
0: mm-hmm. more fungible okay so now to the cloud uh, arm 64 is still breaking into the world of cloud hosting for virtual machines uh, aws or amazon's cloud is the major host of virtual machines that will run arm 64 images and at the time of this writing from uh the clara systems article here Uh, Azure is experimenting with offering deployment pipelines on ARM64 and other providers have experimented with ARM64 virtual machines. So I guess there will be more uh, in the future or a a wider uh, choice of users uh, or of of clouds that people can choose from. FreeBSD runs very well on the Amazon Web Services AWS with their Graviton2 hosts. Graviton2 is the second generation of general access ARM64 servers that Amazon has offered in the cloud. And they talk a bit about the uh, Graviton platform that our, uh, yeah AWS introduced in November 2018 with the first generation of hardware using the Annapurna Labs processors. And so that platform features 16 Cortex-A72 cores organized as four quad-core clusters, all operating at 2.3 gigahertz. Oh, wow, that's already something.
1: Now, yeah, whereas the new the Graviton 2s are the new ARM Neoverse, uh, which is their server-class processor, whereas the Cortex is more the kind of Cell phone type processor. Uh, and so that quadrupled it up to uh, 64 cores with up to 7x the performance compared to the first gen on their newer 7 nanometer process. So they're, you know, very yeah. high end machines. Uh, and you can, uh, they have a, a free tier. You can use the um, EC2, was it the T4G.micro uh, instance type? is uh, eligible for the free tier where you can run up to uh 720 hours a month which is 24 7 for one instance although you know if you don't if you turn them off when you're not using them it means you could run two instances for some of that time or something anyway you can run freebsd uh 12 the arm image on one of these arm instances for free until the end of June. oh nice so if you always wanted to try out freebsd on arm 64. And this is a great way to do it.
0: Oh, yeah. If you're pondering getting one of these embedded boards yourself, this could be a good chance to see what kind of you know device support is there and how it feels uh, and how... You
1: know. Right. But also what it feels like to have a, <laughs> yeah, pastel that pastel too. Stuff, a little <laughs> toy board. Yeah, great.
0: So they, they walk you through how to uh, create such an instance. And they also show a bit of um, how to ins- well, SSH into the instance once it's launched. Launched. And there's a a section about the uh, software side as well as the T4G burstable instances. So these are when the CPU, uh, the storage, which is on EBS, or the network, the ENA, is not running above a baseline capacity, the instance accrues credits, which can later be used when there is an increase in workload. So you can save that for later, uh, in short.
1: Yeah, basically, uh, for all the time that your instance is mostly idle, you earn points and then you can spend those points to get more cpu time when you need it uh, so when you go to do something your slow instance actually can run at a faster speed for a short time based on how long you've been saving up these idle credits yeah anyway if you're interested in it check out the article uh and try it out mm-hmm. so next up we have uh plan 9 from bell labs in cyberspace uh, which is a a fresh post over on the bell labs website when well, they talk a bit more about the history of Plan 9 and where it came from and all the different bits about it. Uh, in particular, they say that there's uh, Plan 9's distributed design also lives on in some of the other projects, such as worldwide stream, where stream processing programs are seamlessly deployed across the network of compute nodes that are geographically spread across, you know, a 5G edge or a, a cloud and so on. Uh, but they also talk about the fact that, you know, the plan nine code is, uh, now publicly available and there's a bit of a community around it actually still building on it.
0: Yeah. And yeah. Oh, I immediately recognized the only person in the picture at the the top (laughs) with Ken Thompson. The other ones are just like, have I seen these people before? But that's just me.
1: (laughs) But yeah, if you're interested, it's definitely worth uh, checking out this article and some of the links in it that go off to some of the things Plan 9 went on to do later on, but also uh, the fact that they have open sourced a bunch of it and, uh, you know, even talks about Glenda, the Plan 9 bunny that's their mascot.
0: Oh, yes, this is not... Uh, I, I keep forgetting the name, um, but
1: yeah, it's good to <laughs> to be reminded of it. I just saw the copyright and that's how I knew the name. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, so it's a three minute read. It's quickly, but definitely gives you um, an overview of what Plan 9 is. Then we have Inferno is open source as well. So there's here's the link to bitbucket.org. So the Inferno 64 OS. And you can find uh, the usual things, the source, the commits, all the branches. Um, so what is Inferno, you ask? It's a distributed operating system originally developed at Bell Labs. Here we go. But now developed and maintained by Vita Nuova as free software. Ah, the new life. Applications written in Inferno's concurrent programming language, Limbo, are compiled in its, uh, to its portable virtual machine code. This, oh really, this is Dante's Inferno all over. Okay, to run anywhere on a network in the portable environment that Inferno provides. Unusually, that environment looks and acts like a complete operating system. Ah, so Inferno represents services and resources in a file-like name hierarchy. Programs access them using only the file operations open, read, write, and close. So that's originally where Unix came from, but they had a bit more nowadays. But files are not just stored data, but represent devices, network and protocol interfaces. Sound familiar? Dynamic data sources and services. The approach unifies and provides basic naming, structuring, and access control mechanisms for all system resources. And a single file service protocol, the same as plan 9's 9P, makes all those resources available for import or export throughout the network in a uniform way, independent of location. So an application simply attaches the resource it needs to its owner per process name hierarchy, the namespace.
1: It... Yep, And uh, with this, it looks like they have the subdirectories for Every OS I can think of, Uh, AIX, Dragonfly BSD, FreeBSD, Inferno itself, Irix, Linux, Mac OS, uh, NetBSD, Windows, OpenBSD, Plan9, and Solaris.
0: So are these compatibility layers or are they looking? Uh,
1: It seems like it's probably for the the runtime, right? You write the code in limbo and compile it and then it runs in the disk virtual machine, kind of like Java.
0: Oh, yes, I see. But let's check uh, last commit dates. So so these are the 386 versions of uh, at least FreeBSD and Dragonfly. Uh, anything recent here? I see something from 2020. Just checking if there is some uh, activity.
1: No, and if you click the Commits tab on the side, you can see all the most recent stuff.
0: Ah, uh, Yes, better than searching manually. Oh, yeah, so there is activity. People are committing and merging stuff. Uh, so if you're interested in Inferno OS, check it out. It's better, probably a, a much more approachable way than Plan 9, I guess. At least a bit more modern feel to it. Time for the news roundup this week. We have some good news from NetBSD. They hit their donation milestone, a financial report for 2020. So this always sounds good. Remember, uh, the NetBSD Foundation is uh, supporting the NetBSD project. And so they write here on netbsd.org's blog, uh, they nearly hit their 2020 donation milestone set after the release of 9.0 of $50,000. I guess that's US dollar. Um, These donations have enabled us to fund significant work on NetBSD in 2020, such as an ARCH64 package build server, which is victory.netbsd.org. Nice name. Thanks to Western Washington University for hosting this machine. Yep, great to have universities support that project. Um, modernizing Wi-Fi network stack and release engineering work by Martin Huseman. LLDB support by Michael Gorny. i would probably be mangling the names. Um, Ptrace and GDB improvements by Kamil Reiterowski. Ah, yes, that I remember. Uh, If you're interested in seeing more work like this, please consider a donation via PayPal or GitHub sponsors to the NetBSD Foundation. Uh, You can find their financial report for 2020, which has a bit more detail I'm fairly sure of. Um, And they note that uh, they realize that this data is inconsistent with the website indicator of donations. This is due to the fact that the website is updated manually in an error-prone process as the donations are processed. Uh, The financial report, uh, which is just completed, is prepared paired separately using ledger yes because um they need to do this um for you know tax reasons and stuff but definitely uh gra- congratulations to hitting that milestone
1: yeah uh so next we have uh, an article from rubinard about grep uh, when it returns standard input on freebsd so uh goes on to say i was dealing with a bizarre error with grep on freebsd and soon uh and it soon infected my macOS and NetBSD machines too, and it was driving me crazy. Uh negative results didn't print anything and returned a exit code of one or false as expected. So if you did ZFS list and pipe grep illegalness, uh it wouldn't uh it would exit with an error in saying that string wasn't found. If one or more uh lines matched, however, it would only print a single line in lieu of those matching lines. Uh in lieu still sounds like a decadent french take on a schnitzel, right <laughs> uh but the exit code was still correct so when he did a zfs list pipe grep log um he would find it would do some of what he expected but not all of it and then it would exit with the right exit code um this was less than uh useful you could say it was useless <laughs> although uh i felt the only thing uh that it was the only thing I was having less of was hair growing on my scalp after ripping out a sufficient quantity of it. I went digging through and realized that in my uh, OpenBSD KSH config file, the .kshrc, for reasons that confound me to this day, he had grep options, uh, colors equals auto, files with matches, and recursive. Uh, I removed the file with matches and tried again. And then got the expected output. Uh, and he says, hot uh, ziggity, and I got my grep back. Right. So the files with matches flags, if you do a grep on multiple files, will we just return the names of files that have a match. Uh, and it was treating standard in as a file. So it was actually, it was literally printing uh, standard input as the result of grep rather than uh, returning the. Uh, matching lines and yeah that would definitely catch you hmm. off guard grep was only returning matching files uh, with an option set instead of matching lines it threw me by treating standard input as a file which it dutifully reported back as the file that matched uh, the reason it spread was another uh, silly mistake i had begun to merge my os-specific.kshrc files into one with a case statement to handle where OSs differ The good news is FreeBSD, NetBSD, and uh, macOS broadly use and respect each other's own flags owing to using the same user lands. But those GNU uh, options, you know, are not Unix. (laughs) Um, There's a pun there because GNU stands for (laughs) GNU is not Unix. Um, So he fixed this um, by fixing the offending grep options. Uh, So imagine what happened there was when FreeBSD switched from GNU grep to BSD grep, that behavior was subtly different and caused him confusion.
0: Yeah, there's only so much compatibility to GNU we could do, or there's probably a switch to enable the GREP, uh, the
1: GNU behavior of GREP. Uh, uh No, I think this one is just that uh, th- technically, if you look at the flag files with matches, um, returning standard in is probably the right thing to do, but it's not what GNU grep yeah. does, and maybe it should be different, I don't know, but uh you know, this is mostly seems to be self-inflicted, obviously, but uh it's not a, a bad point. And it's something maybe we should ask Kyle about. Mm.
0: <laughs> Just yet another option. Um yeah, so people um who probably encounter this should be aware of that. It's the second time this episode that I'm reading the OKSH as a shell. Uh so maybe I should look at that more closely. People seem to like that. Oh, and next. Uh, is a nice one for the people who are sitting at home wondering what they could do to be productive. We have a
1: random programming challenge. Well, it's more, if you want to learn programming languages, uh, often it helps to have a problem that you can solve with it. Uh, And so in order to uh, kind of stretch my skills and and work on programming languages I'm maybe less comfortable with, I found these little puzzles uh, to be quite helpful. So I was in particular looking at this one, which is problem number 84, which is basically the game of Monopoly. Uh, And you go about figuring out what uh, squares you have the least chance of landing on when you uh, go through the rules here. And then uh, the puzzle is actually about figuring out what squares would become the ones that you land on least often or most often if you change the rules of the game slightly. In your favor? (laughs) <laughs> uh not necessarily i think if you change uh which dice you use so if you change from a pair of six sided dice uh to can't find the actual question
0: <laughs> oh to make it more easier to program not to make the the game
1: work towards your favorite no so um the programming exercise is just about figuring out the oh. difference uh or which you know they so what they do is they say with here's the standard rules and with the standard rules the answer is this So you can build up your programming model of the program and make sure you get the same answer to know you've done it right. Then you change to the new rules and figure out what Ah, the answer would be.
0: Hey, that sounds like a nice way of torturing students in an
1: exam. (laughs) If if I would be that. (laughs) So basically the question ends up in the end being if instead of using two six-sided die, you use two four-sided die, uh, then what would the... uh, the three least common squares be
0: yeah
1: or three most popular squares end up being because in the normal game it's uh jail um e3 what's e3 uh yeah uh e3 and um the go square Mm -hmm. because you know there's the community chess cards or whatever they send you back to go uh. So they tell you, you know, here's what the answer is in the normal rules, but if you changed one variable, the dice from two six-sided die to two four-sided die, what would the new result be? And so, to submit an answer, you literally just have to type in the six numbers. Uh. But you have to write your own program to go and figure it out. So this, this definitely terminates, either if you're bankrupt
0: or can't get out of jail anymore?
1: No, it's like you're not actually playing the game, you're just going around oh, once, the board. Okay. Uh, and well, no many times but it, it's all about figuring out the probability that you will oh. land on each square so you know when i did it i just said okay start and go and then just do a hundred thousand turns <laughs> of rolling the dice and then uh for each square we figure out how often you landed on it and you know it ends up that the most popular squares are jail go and this uh the one square that is uh so many turns after jail mm. because you get sent to jail so often and, start and you leave you're most likely to end up uh like seven squares after mm, more something a typical like that, that dice roll, yeah. yeah basically because with two six-sided die the most common value you're going to get is seven yeah think, right? six plus
0: one five two four three yeah etc yeah,
1: et yeah. Mm. so seven squares after uh the most common place you get sent to will probably end up being the second most common something like that um and so the question is how does that change if you change the dice yeah uh and so you can write a little program to basically simulate the game you know program the rules of monopoly into your little programming language and then just in a for loop just go over it uh i was doing this one with a friend and they were doing it in c and i was doing it in in php at the time because I i could prototype it faster um but, you know, I would like to go and revisit it again and see and kind of stretch my skills mm. a little bit and, and try it that way. But I just, um, because it's such a closed-ended problem, you know, unlike trying to build a new tool or something where there's always more <laughs> things you could do, this one, it's like, all right, here's the rules, and here's how to make sure your program is doing it right, because you should come up with the same answers as the program, as, as the question. Then just change this one variable from two six-sided die to two four-sided die, and figure out the answer. Uh and they have hundreds of these yeah. problems.
0: I think it's also a nice way of, you know, introducing a bit more statistics into
1: um a class, let's say. Yes. Well, uh, you know, uh it is Project Euler, so it's based on a mathematician. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Good to to know about that. I I will. But yeah, they have this archive of things and then uh they have difficulty numbers assigned to the different uh puzzles. Uh, And you can see like how many other people have solved it. You know, like the uh, number two, find every uh, even Fibonacci number has been solved by over 750,000 people. Hmm. Whereas, uh, you know, some of the harder problems like find consecutive prime numbers or consecutive prime sums, uh, only 62,000 people have solved that one.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's increasing in difficulty. But
1: yeah, definitely good.
0: Uh, for a rainy afternoon
1: yeah and just a nice way to uh have little programming projects you could try to do in an afternoon or something rather than you know trying to build whole software from scratch which can be awfully hard to do and well is very useful in the end uh doesn't always work so well as a, a learning exercise something smaller and tractable uh is nice and the advantage with that project Euler site is you can use whatever programming language oh, you yes, want. Oh, so yes, you're free. Uh, or you can even do it, you know, do it once in a programming language you know and get used to the the concepts and understand what your code's going to end up looking like and then do it again in a programming language you're less mm, familiar you're with. You're just learning. Like at some point I would like to learn more Python. Welcome uh, so to the club. Taking my solution and writing it in Python uh would yeah. be interesting. Yeah,
0: so definitely check out the whole Project Euler site then and start maybe at the beginning and then work your way up to at least this question. Uh, or this problem and then
1: oh you can just also just jump to this yeah one. randomly um yeah so <laughs> uh, good to know it's interesting and you know if you've ever played the board game it's easy to You relate probably to never want um, to play the board game after solving that <laughs> well the real question is does it teach you something about the board game knowing which square people are most likely yeah. to land
0: on right then you can uh, in- invest your finances better. <laughs> this is not financial <laughs> advice here um, on a virtual board game. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, let's see what... Ah, this next item is something for the geeks out there. Uh, OpenBSD has added support for Coordinated Mars Time, or MTC, because why not?
1: Uh, the Mars equivalent of Earth's universal yep,
0: time. because... Maybe one day we'll need it, so we'll be prepared in OpenBSD. Um, so the commit message is here. It's uh, touched a couple of files, but at the bottom you see the actual log message. And that is from uh, who committed that? Sebastian Benoit, okay. And he wrote, uh, to make sure that OpenBSD can be used elsewhere than just Earth, I mean, Earth is just the beta site, Uh, this div introduces coordinated Mars time, MTC, the Mars equivalent of Earth's universal time coordinated. Mars rotates a little bit slower than Earth, and its day is 24 hours 39 minutes. So that's what you can already use next time you're at a party. Did you know Mars rotates a little bit slower? Um, So 24 hours 39 minutes 35.244 seconds. If you remember that, then you're the super geek and you're alone at that party, I can tell you. Okay, back to the commit message. This obviously creates some problems with a lot of interfaces and programs that handle time. With this diff, OpenBSD can now work with time zones on Mars simply by setting tz equals mct. Other time zones on Mars are not yet defined. Neither are location aliases such as tz equals Mars slash perseverance or what's that crater name? uh in the well i think they're mostly named after rovers at this point but... yeah <laughs> um applications should continue working even with longer days yep bump the major on every single base library as many interfaces change danger in all caps abi incompatibility updating to this kernel requires extra work so you don't be able so you won't be able to log in install a snapshot instead And a warning in all caps. It is currently not possible to use SSH to log in between systems on MCT and any Earth time zone. However useful that might be. Fixes to the SSH protocols and programs are being handled by D. Tucker. At at Manpage, bits still missing are being discussed by JMC. Much assistance is fixed in fixing user land issues. And OK from Günther. Checks that TLS still works on Mars by TB. OK by Florian for the pleased SLACD. Uh, and name server testing. Mars can't wait by Theodore Rat. Nice. Is that April first? Yes. Oh yes. So, uh,
1: if, <laughs> as you might notice from the date, this was an April Fool's joke.
0: Yeah, but why? Uh,
1: but we have another great one from the OpenZFS project. Uh, Jorgen Lundman, uh, who uh, is responsible for the macOS and Windows ports of ZFS, posts uh, his work in progress. Account for left-spinning hard drives in the southern hemisphere. (laughs) Nice. Like, you notice, uh, some minor math equations need to be solved still, but it should help protect data uh, for our southernmost users. (laughs) This will also future-proof ZFS against Earth's expected magnetic pole reversal when, uh, things will switch around, uh, (laughs) He has not tested this on uh, shingled magnetic recording discs, right? And flash drives. Right. Also, looking for testers at the extreme poles. So, if anybody happens to be at the North Pole or South Pole, please test this code. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a feature. <laughs> uh, and he also notes that using DST testing might violate the GPL.
0: Ah, oh, yes, that
1: that too. Yeah. So he says ZFS needs to take into effect the formula F equals d over dt times mv and possibly the Eto'Vos effect. Uh, how has this been tested? He says, extensive testing. To simulate Southern Hemisphere disk arrays uh, were held by the testing and integrity team members and spun really fast in the opposite <laughs> direction. Very nice. Uh, and if you actually look at the diff, there's some, uh, some crazy stuff in here, some nice formulas, <laughs> like uh, apply the nevier stokes equation with magnetic... Crandall total number assuming a geodynamo in range of 3.5 to 4.2
0: yeah they really thought about that
1: it's probably working (laughs) and then for example uh, matt aarons mentioned not sure what's going on with all these test failures should we be running some of the tests in the southern hemisphere regions of aws it looks like there's sao paulo cape town or sydney Uh, but what happens at equatorial locations You're right on the equator and you're not in the northern or southern hemisphere. Are they spinning at all there? Hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, is Singapore close enough to test that? (laughs) Uh, And then someone else posts uh, please make this configurable on a per disk basis. We specifically use right spinning disks right now, but we'd like to gradually replace them with left spinning disks if possible, as the right spinners use more power due to the negative Coriolis effect. Sure. Uh, and then another note is that the test failures may be caused by not taking into account that the disks could be mounted vertically. Uh, in the test failures, the disk is told to move left, but it is actually down.
0: Right. Yeah, that needs to be
1: considered. <laughs> Excellent. And then finally, the original author, after a couple of days, noted that this design needs a rethink. Let's try again next year.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very well. I think that took a lot of preparation to get right. But speaking of disks, which brings us to backups, and that brings us to our sponsor for this week, which is Tarsnap. Uh, Tarsnap gives you not just spinning disks, but backups. And in case the disks go crazy, you can retrieve your backups. Tarsnap lets you make backups using a familiar tool, TAR, for many Unix users. That's very familiar. And it adds a bit of extra stuff to it, but the basic syntax is very similar to the original tar. And it will do all of this um, on your local disk, like um, finding out the unique blocks, segmenting and deduplicating that, hashing all of that, and then compressing that, which makes it much smaller. Then uh, you create a key, or probably have created that before. Uh, You sign and encrypt your backed up data before it leaves your hard disk into the, uh, in this case, AWS cloud. And so only encrypted uh, data leaves your disk. And there it sits for maybe many years, maybe forever. Uh, Probably you will never need it. But on the day you will need it, you will need two things. The personal key that was used to encode this file or the files in there and the original um, file from Amazon. That gives uh, from Tarsnap allows you to retrieve that, of course, the list of backups you've made, hopefully, regularly, and then you can unencrypt your backups again. That is what Tarsnap provides at a very low rate. Uh, So for me, it's $10 uh, at the beginning of the year, and I probably uh, haven't used all of that by the end of the year. So it's very, very cheap and uh, has a lot of clients available for most of the common operating systems out there, the Unixes, the Windowses, the Linuxes, uh, the Mac OSes. So, no excuse anymore to not look at Tarsnap and use it as your daily backup storage. It's feedback and question time for us. Uh, so, we were happy that we got feedback again. So, we did a bit of a mm-hmm. uh, had a bit of a you know dry season there with a little less feedback, so we couldn't provide you much here. So any feedback you have, any questions, anything that is unclear that you always wanted to know about the BSDs or Unix in general, send that to feedback at bsdnow.tv, and we will cover it in a future episode at exactly this spot. So Brandon was the first one, and he seems to have a router thing that we should talk about. So Brandon writes, hi, thanks for the show. Uh, I know it takes a lot of time, and it's appreciated. Thank you for the feedback. Uh, We like doing it, so (laughs) there will be more. Um, So he's setting up a home router with OpenBSD, PC Engine's APU. But rather than doing the Wi-Fi straight from the BSD box, he wanted to have a separate router or uh, module that he can plug into the BSD box to handle Wi-Fi, or maybe given uh, an additional wired Ethernet port as well. Um, So he thinks Alan mentioned a year or so back that he Does this, is there a specific type brand or whatever of Wi-Fi adapter he should be looking at for this or can he just plug any router in and extend that way? He's tried looking online without success.
1: Yeah, so what I had was basically a standard TV link router you buy off the shelf uh, and I connected it to the network uh, and I just went into its little web interface and disabled its DHCP server. So it stops, it doesn't advertise itself as the router the OpenBSD machine does. So clients can associate with the access point, uh, and when they do their DHCP to get an address, they'll get it from uh, my BSD router, and they will use that to get out. And so it just, yeah, basically you turn that router into an access point in a switch. So yeah, you get the extra couple of gigabit switch ports and the Wi-Fi. Uh, so TP-Link is what I like. Uh, the one I bought in particular was because you could actually run FreeBSD on it, if you wanted. Uh, so I have I have one of them that's torn apart in my living room on the on the healing bench uh, that has a serial port connected and it's actually been flashed with FreeBSD. Although I think it was twelve current at the time, which is not current anymore. Fourteen is. Uh, so it's it hasn't got much love since uh about a couple of weeks after that bsd can where we soldered serial port onto it and so on but yeah i've uh been a fan of the the tp link for wireless uh and it's yeah just disable the router features basically on any wi-fi router thing you buy off the shelf and uh people will still be able to associate to the access point uh and it will just basically bridge them onto your ethernet network where they uh can use your BSD router to get to the internet. Mm -hmm. If other people have uh, similar setups or recommendations
0: for modern devices, uh, then also send this to us. We will be happy to uh, link this to this episode so that people can, uh, or we follow up in another episode so that people can uh, provide their solutions. Okay, so thanks for this feedback. Uh, We have Lawrence next, uh, which uh, has a question. Is BSD for me? That's a good question. It's like a you know, what what more can I can I do? So he writes, hi, I have a question. Is FreeBSD for me? I'm looking to replace my present distro, CentOS 7. I'm experimenting with various distros, Debian, OpenSUSE, uh, Fedora, etc. The last time I looked at FreeBSD for any or any variant of BSD was over 10 years ago. Oh, people told me BSD is for server and making it into a daily driver is like putting a square peg into a round hole. Well, that was 10 years ago, but even then. Okay. Um, he installed FreeBSD 12.2, XORG, GNOME 3, etc. Uh He has an i7, 16 max RAM. Uh, oh, wait, gigs of RAM, sorry. Why did I? <laughs> gigs of RAM, of course. One terabyte rotating Rust and NVIDIA graphics card. He tried and tried finding the proper install for this, uh, viewing various YouTube videos. Uh, he, he listens
1: uh, Listens to people. Uh... Sorry, you, oh, you skipped. He's changed paragraphs in the middle. All oh, right, so there. OK.
0: Come again. Uh, he tried and tried finding the proper install for this NVIDIA card. Here we go. Searching FreeBSD documentation. Online reading my two reference books, FreeBSD by Annalise Anderson. I haven't heard about that. And The Complete FreeBSD by Greg Lehay. Hey. Oh, that's my that was my very first FreeBSD book. And viewing various YouTube videos. Here we go. Uh DJ Ware and RoboNagi. After 20 and more hours of climbing down various rabbit holes, finally found a solution. Uh oh, he has a link.
1: Although he provides a link to the FreeBSD7 documentation, which is probably quite out of date. Although I think the process of installing the NVIDIA driver is not much different. But in general, you just package install NVIDIA-driver, unless your video card is quite old and you need, the I think, it's NVIDIA driver and it's, uh, an older version number.
0: Yeah, yeah. You probably v- climbed out very old rabbit holes, and probably that's why. Um, but yeah, it's... If you go to the FreeBSD website, find the handbook, it has everything in there. And the most recent version version of it. So his next question is, uh, his next job is to install his old Dell B1160W laser printer. So far, no joy with cups or LPR. Uh, he guesses FreeBSD is not for him. Okay. Tests his patience and separates water from oil. Sorry for the rant, but this process has been frustrating. Reading comments, I find fellow travelers into having a problem installing the NVIDIA card. I know uh, now why Mr. Torvalds has a dislike for NVIDIA. Well, that's a separate thing. Thank you for your podcast. And I um, have... Oh, he asked. And continues to listen all through this COVID isolation.
1: Okay. I'm not sure which problem you're running into because I've always had the least trouble with the NVIDIA card. It's just install the driver package and problem solved. Uh,
0: yeah, I think he was frustrated not I finding it right away, the right things to do.
1: Right, but the, like I'm not sure what wrong one he could have found. There's mostly just the one package, and then there's an older version for older cards. But that might even work still. Yeah. Uh, so where you could for the printer, uh, I cheat. My printer is a network printer, so it basically it's cups and it talks over the network rather than trying to use LPR or something. Uh, LPR is for line printing. I don't know that that's going to do you very good on a laser printer anyway. Mm. So you should definitely
0: check the FreeBSD forums. They have pretty much all kinds of issues there
1: and discuss this. The other thing is, if you're looking for something where your desktop stuff, like, you know, XORG and so on, is going to be configured out of the box, you might look at one of the desktop distros of FreeBSD, like GhostBSD. Yeah,
0: that also is a good start. Uh,
1: That's going to have a wizard for setting up the video card for you and so on. Uh, Although the printer is probably going to be a pain no matter what you (laughs) do. Yeah. but that's. (laughs) Have you ever tried using a printer on Windows? It's not any easier uh, there either. Yeah.
0: So definitely don't give up. Um it's probably took a, took you a while to get started with CentOS 7 this way. Um so definitely look around in the FreeBSD forums, the FreeBSD handbook and or go online on on any of our uh, IRC channels that could also be a quick source of people uh where they can help you uh just provide the right command or the right uh you know package to install so that could get you uh, further rather than googling and maybe finding outdated information that is not relevant anymore
1: yeah um we we feel like uh we should add a header to all those uh old versions of the docs. yeah this
0: is outdated
1: like if you're in the FreeBSD 7 docs it's like these docs are from this year you probably want to go over here where the current version of it is the problem is because of the way the links were generated there's it's not going to be the same file name or whatever and so we're not going to be able to dump people to anywhere other than you know the front page of the docs but uh i think at least putting a big warning across the top for old versions would. yeah be.
0: so to always get the latest version go to the FreeBSD front page go to documentation and from there you can find the handbook and that always gives you the latest version without any uh, old stuff that google turns up Okay, hopefully that uh, gets you a little bit further ahead. Uh, definitely a good way of uh, <laughs> listening to more episodes during the, the crisis and learning through the podcast is also an interesting way because we also provide a lot a lot of um, tutorials uh, here and there where people can find the things to uh, use in their own setups. Okay, next up is My- Miguel with another printing question. Miguel writes, hello, Ellen at Benedict. About two years ago, I emailed the show asking if you guys Knew anything about making a cup server on one of the single board computers like a Raspberry Pi uh, using BSD. You suggested I try it myself and make a write-up about it. Ah, see, I remember this one. I might do the former, but I would at least like to update you even if it's two years later. Yes, we want to know what, what happened. So he based his purchase on OpenBSD's ARM64 support page and went with an odroid. The biggest learning experience here was having to use serial console. This is something I have never done before, and it was pretty cool to learn. See? Installation was no issue. What ended up being a bit more of an issue was the printer we have at home. It's an HP consumer level printer, which seems fairly proprietary at first glance. It requires a special Metro style app on Windows to work. Ah, here, yeah, I see where this is going. However, on OpenBSD, it was a matter of just plugging in the printer via USB to the Odroid, set up Samba and cups, HP cups as well, which happens to be in OpenBSD's ports, and had a working printer server. Cool. Now, If only cartridge pieces weren't terrible. (laughs) Prices, yeah. Yeah, that is expensive, I guess. Anyways, it's just... uh, I just wanted to share this since this was on my mind for a bit. Yeah, great. PS. Oh, Benedict, you emailed me another time asking for a link to the in-progress PS4 emulator. Here it is. Ah, great. Ah, yes. I kind of lost that um, train of thought. But yeah good to have. There's not much to show yet, but it's a good effort considering they're working with both a literal and figurative black box. Oh yes, great. Maybe I can put that into my column that I'm doing now for the FreeBSD journal. Practical ports. Uh Yeah,
1: great. Nice follow-up. So yeah, at least somebody's having success with printers. Seeing of the printer, I have uh, I've just used it with the, the cups over the network to do IPS or whatever, the internet printing. Um And then I know that my co-student had connected it via USB and actually managed to scan to use the scanner function on it. Oh. Uh from FreeBSD.
0: Ah uh, yeah, pr- scanning is uh, a whole
1: different I don't know how. I I wasn't And if you have it. one
0: of these combined things like print, uh,
1: scan, fax and uh, coffee making. Yes, it's it's one of those, but I specifically bought one that connects by the network because it generally means it, it can use a generic driver and doesn't need the special software. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I happen to have my FreeBSD computers in the office downstairs, and we have some Windows desktops at home, and then I have laptops and stuff. It's very handy to for all of them to be able to just print directly to the printer rather than need some kind of print server.
0: Yeah. just Printing should be quick and easy. Being able to just...
1: Yes. So just having a network printer mm. was nice. Uh, but it looks like... Yeah. Uh,
0: and since people are... This look to work Yeah. Since good. people at home uh, need to print that they could normally do in the office... Or into copy shop, uh, then they have a much higher need these days uh, for this kind of uh, service. Yeah. So if anyone else has like a quick and easy cup server setup for the BSDs, then send it to us. We will probably feature it in a future episode because it's what people are interested in. And uh, I think that is the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. And hope to uh, hear you or you listen to us next time uh, for another episode. See you next week.